It's Friday afternoon. We've locked the door before another, quote, constitutional scholar, unquote, tries to explain the separation of powers to us on Facebook, and also because it's time for another edition of our weekly podcast, Tales from the Brown Desk. I'm Jake Rigney of Rigney Law, LLC. With me as usual is my law partner, wife, and the lady who saved me a whole hour of my life today by switching over my laundry. I appreciate that. Thank you, Cassie. Uh, It is my wife, Cassie Rigney. Our host is Terry Ohm. Friendly reminder, Tales from the Brown Desk is a free-flowing conversation involving two foul-mouthed attorneys. It may include graphic descriptions of sexual activity, violence, and peculiar French geography. It may not be suitable for children, the homeless, the homeful, the homely, and the bold and the beautiful. Yes, that's a soap opera reference. Live with it. Listener discretion is advised. Here's Terry. Hello, everyone. Hi, Jake. How are you today? I am full of sushi. How are you? Good. Does full of sushi put you in a good mood, medium mood, bad um, mood? I'd say on a scale of 73, I'm a 42.8. That's not bad. Yeah, you can do the math. I don't know where that is. I think that's above average. I'd have to get a calculator, but. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Cassie. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Good. Very well. That's nice. <laughs> very formal today, Cassie is. I'm very well. Thank you for asking, Terry. So today we're going to continue our series, A Walk Through the Criminal Justice System in Indiana. Last week, we talked about the bond review and review of counsel hearings in a criminal case. God, is that all we talked about last week for those two hearings? <laughs> oh, man. And Florida man and woman. Okay. Lots of, yeah, sorry, everybody. That was, that was the first 10 minutes of that were boring. I'm sure it'll be better this week. Yes. But before we continue our series, we have a listener question. Oh, good. Now, Amanda from Indianapolis wants to know, What is the worst thing that can happen to her if she does not abide by the statewide mask mandate? We're jumping right into the separation (laughs) of powers. Uh, I thought I was just going to joke about that in the intro. I mean, the worst thing in theory that could happen is you could get arrested. uh, You could get charged with a violation of the governor's mask order, which I believe is a B misdemeanor. And then you could be jailed for 90 actual days. The maximum sentence is 180 days. If you're good in jail, then you'd get out in 90. Although if you you want to go worst, worst case scenario, and then you went and acted up every day you were in jail, uh, you could sit six months in the county jail. So not awesome. Although to be perfectly honest, I'd say the chances of that happening to anyone are extraordinarily low. So this brings me to my own personal question. I know when Indianapolis did the mandatory mask mandate that one of the groups that was excluded from this was inmates. So I don't know if inmates are wearing masks. So maybe if you don't want to wear a mask, you can go to jail and not wear one. (laughs) I've uh, visited a couple of the jails um, and appeared telephonically with individuals from the jail my recollection is they usually have masks on. You know, they can't abide by the six-foot rule, um, so that aspect, but, you know, the ones I've seen were mostly wearing masks. So now we're going to continue our walk through the criminal justice system. And like I said, last week we talked about the bond review hearing and the review of counsel hearing. 
Next up on my list I have is the pre-trial conference. Mm-hmm. Is this what would happen next? Um, maybe. Uh, like I said, these these sort of all can occur in simultaneously or in sometimes in different orders. Um, but a pre-trial conference is kind of the catch-all term for hearings that happen before the trial where everyone gets together to figure out where the case is, at what point in the case is it. So typically the judge wants to know how discovery is going, whether discovery is complete, and if it is complete, um, whether the case is going to be resolved with a trial or a dismissal or a guilty plea hearing. So what can one expect to happen at a pretrial conference? Can you go to jail? Well, I mean... Depend any anytime you go in court, it's possible you could go. I mean, if you misbehave, but I mean, if you haven't done anything, if you're just there for a pretrial, no. Um, that's one of those things. I mean, a circumstance would have to change to change your custody status, and that's generally something willfully, some willful misstep on the the client's part. Well, a pretrial conference from the client's perspective probably doesn't look like much goes on, but from the lawyer's and the judge's perspective, um, they're you know checking the status, and the judge wants to make sure things are moving forward, parties are in communication, um, but they're oftentimes very quick hearings. Um, the judge is a referee, and if there's not a problem, he really wants to take a hands-off role. He's there you know, to solve disputes between the parties. When are pretrial conferences set? Uh, sometime between nine and three on Monday and Friday (laughs) and between Monday and Friday. No, every court has their own schedule. Every court does things a little bit differently. Um, and so it just depends on the court that it's in. Um, they will always be after the initial hearing and before the trial, but, um, in terms of, but in terms of what time of day or what day of the week or how many of them you will have, Every court is different, and it's hard to say. Um, but sometimes I've, I've been on cases where they ended up having 10 or 12 pretrial conferences, and there are courts that will only give you one. And then they just say, here's your trial date. Figure it out. So a case can have more than one pretrial conference? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it goes along with the other discussion we are talking about discovery. These are not things, these are not, you know, hard to find lines. Um, the case will have as many pre-trials as appropriately dictate for the circumstance. Uh, you know, a traffic infraction is going to have much less need than a murder case. Um, so that's where you get, you know... People think defense attorneys can control these things. Well, where's my pretrial, and why is it in two months and not in two weeks? And well, the court controls its calendar, and it's up to them. And they each calendar has each court has its own rhythm, um, and then you can only, as an attorney, influence that so much. Can a criminal case be dismissed at a pretrial conference? Yes, um, a criminal case can be dismissed any time. Um, if the prosecutor files a motion to dismiss. Um, and that, it happens all sorts of different ways um, when when a case does get dismissed. Um, but one of them is potentially at the pretrial. You will not usually see a dismissal granted on a defense motion at a pretrial conference. That typically doesn't happen very often. What does happen a little more often 
is there's been some sort of discovery issue, potentially a witness not showing up for trial, and the defense successfully gets that witness excluded from the case. And then sometimes because of that, the state has no choice but to file a motion to dismiss. But people have seen that happen and mistakenly believed that the defense attorney got it dismissed when technically it was the state that filed the motion to dismiss. They just had no choice because of what had happened procedurally up to that point. So it creates this confusion sometimes where people think that a defense attorney can file a motion to dismiss and just get something thrown out. That almost never happens. There are some grounds where a defense attorney can file a motion to dismiss, but they are limited, and it's not just because, like, we don't believe them or they're lying. Um, <laughs> like, that's that's the one I hear sometimes is, well, you know, the witnesses are lying, so I want you to file a motion to dismiss. That is not a legal ground by which you can file a motion to dismiss. Um, there has to be a legal ground, a legal basis for it, not just you think the court shouldn't believe them. That's what a trial is for, is to determine the credibility of, of the witnesses. Now, is the only way for a criminal case to be dismissed prior to trial is through a motion to dismiss? Can at any time the judge just say, like, I'm dismissing this case? Not prior to the trial. Um, during the trial, after the state has rested, the judge could dismiss a case if he didn't, if they didn't meet certain legal hurdles in in their evidence when they presented it, um, but no, a, a judge can't just decide, I don't like this case, I'm going to throw it out. Um, that's, I think that sometimes people see things happen and and they think that that's what happened, but typically what actually happens is the state files a motion to dismiss. Um, 99.9% of the cases that get dismissed get dismissed by the state. Um, and it's probably even a higher percentage than that. Does the defendant have to be present at the pretrial conference? That's up to the judge. Um, sometimes you can have attorneys only. Um, so, yeah, it's judge's, judge's decision. Yeah, there are, uh, there are courts where the judge never requires the, the defendant to be there. Um, and there are courts where the judge always requires the defendant to be there and you just got to know the court you're working in. Do they drug test at pretrial conferences? Not as due course, um, but certainly, um, as a prosecutor, there were times where people came in and were suspected of being under the influence and, uh, the court would order drug tests on the spot. On the spot, right there, you're taken out into a, <laughs> well, not right there, like you go to a bathroom and do it. I am not uh, privy to the mechanics <laughs> of the drug testing <laughs> procedure. The extent of my knowledge is you, sir, are ordered to go do a drug drop and then the people return with the test results. <laughs> The, the, the judge has a certain number of cups under his desk, <laughs> and he gets he has to hand them all out by the end of the week. Meet his quota. Right. So <laughs> when he looks, he looks at you when you're walking up, and he's like, yep, I'm going to drug test you. I'm going to drug test you. No, you're a stockbroker. I'm not going to drug. No, that's not what happens. Um, <laughs> some people who have a history of drug use according to their criminal history are often drug tested regularly as part of their release conditions. 
And those people can occasionally be ordered to test every time they show up. Um, more often, though, um, people never get tested at all, at least not by the judge. Um, drug testing is a thing that happens a lot more on probation than it does pretrial, although it is becoming more prevalent again, I think, recently, especially since the Supreme Court is pushing the courts in the direction of releasing more people um, pre-trial. And so more people, I think, are getting placed on with what are being called pre-trial services, and that typically does include drug testing. What happens if the defendant doesn't go to the pre-trial conference or another hearing that's set? Well, as a defense attorney, you uh, try to get the court to grant a leave of their absence for that, and if not, uh, then ask for time to have them come surrender uh, to the court. Because you know, when the, the court schedules you, they're ordering you to appear. That is a court order for you to be somewhere. So if you don't go, um, ultimately the court can issue a warrant for your arrest. Yeah, and, and they also note it that you failed to appear. And they will hold that against you every time in the future that you ever have to ask for a bond. Um, so if you ever pick up another case after that, they will note that you failed to appear previously and you will get a higher bond because of it. So it is really important to take those dates seriously and and um, make sure that you know, you've got your calendar and your transportation sorted out well in advance so that you don't have to worry about it at the last second and you, you don't have to plan for the, you don't have to deal with hiccups. Are there any choices for the defendant to make at a pretrial conference? Sometimes, but for a run of a mill, um, no. And the kind of thing, I mean, this is not supposed to be a surprise, whatever it is. Um, now, sometimes a prosecutor can come out with a quick turnaround plea that that could have been kind of a surprise, but none of this is intended to shock or, um, you know, surprise people. Are pretrial conferences and felony cases any different than misdemeanor cases? Yes, although they don't, not always. Um, they, uh, they don't have to be, and sometimes they aren't, but sometimes they are. That is a, a terrible lawyer answer, by the way. That is... <laughs> Just, I have lawyered so much of this answer. So I've lawyered it so hard, I didn't even say anything. That <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, generally, pretrial conferences are the same wherever you go, but some courts just do them a little differently, and that includes m some misdemeanor courts. So there are some misdemeanor courts where you can go in, you can talk to the court staff, you can fill out a form, and everyone can leave, including the defendant. You never even see the judge. Um but there are some where you, you go up there and everything's on the record and the judge is reading off the cause number and, and uh, asking the attorneys what's going on and, it's, um, and they're very formal. So it's, uh, it, it just varies quite a bit. Every court is tasked with coming up with their own scheme and so of course they're all, they're not uniform. This is the kind of customer service that hiring private counsel gets you. Your attorney knows this, and they're you know generally going to prep you before court. Um, not like you'll have to listen to them and defer to that advice, <laughs> uh, but um, that's that's one of the big benefits of having a private counsel. They know all this, and they will prep you for it before you walk in there. What is pretrial release? Pretrial release is a program that they typically use 
for people who are who they're letting out of jail on low level offenses. Um, so a lot of times instead of making them pay a bond, which some people just can't afford, even if it's only a few hundred bucks, uh, they'll put them on what's called pretrial release. So they'll give them access to services they might need that might prevent them from picking up another case while they're out. And, um, also allows them to be free while their case is pending without having to sit in jail and resolve it that way. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing that's it's been happening for a long time. Its use continues to grow and continues to be supported, I think, by Supreme Courts across the country, especially for dealing with low-level offenders. And um, I think generally it's a pretty positive thing when people use it right. Are any motions filed at a pretrial conference or leading up to it? Again, all this comes back to, I mean, there's just no hard answers. Um, you know, what motions get filed are dictated by the facts of a case. When it is appropriate to file, that is dictated by the facts of the case and, and the, where and, the, and that is. So maybe, very well, maybe they could be um, if, if that's deemed appropriate at the time. But yeah, I guess we're, we're full of lawyer answers today. <laughs> right. I, I think the, the most succinct answer is you can. I, I don't know if every lawyer is different. And if you have a good reason to, you can. If you don't, you shouldn't. <laughs> what would be an example of a motion that a defense attorney would file at a pretrial conference? Scheduling of the pretrial conference, in my mind, is completely detached from when and what, how I file. Frankly, if I, if I was looking at a pretrial date, and I wanted to file a motion to suppress, I would specifically file it in advance of the pretrial with the expectation of having all three calendars available at the pretrial to schedule it. Because um, that can be one of the big benefits of a pretrial to get, you know, everybody's calendar all in one. Um, it's one of those things, filing it at the pretrial, no one is going to be able to respond. You know, you don't hand the judge a, a motion of substance and expect a ruling immediately. So waiting until that time in my mind is not, maybe not the best practice if, you know. Yeah, that, that's true, especially now that we have e-filing. Um, back in the day when you had to actually walk your filing over to the courthouse and get it stamped by the court staff, um, it was a little bit different because then you would potentially like, you wouldn't want to make a trip to the courthouse every day. So you'd file something on a case when you were over there already for the pretrial conference. Um, an example I was thinking of was a motion to exclude, right? So if, if I'm going to try to keep a state's witness from testifying because they haven't appeared for depositions, I file a motion to exclude. I might file that the morning of the pretrial conference just because I didn't you know, didn't want to go over to the, uh, the courthouse and file it earlier. Um, and also there, are, look, I'm going to be honest with you. There are some small strategical advantages you get from springing filings on the other side. Um, of course, sometimes that also backfires because then the judge gives them more time than they would have already had if you had just served them ahead of time. So it's, that's a double edged knife. I don't usually practice that way, but have I never done that? Okay, I'm not going to say I've never done that. What is a motion to exclude? A motion to exclude is uh, a motion you file when you think the court should exclude witnesses and prevent them from testifying at the trial. 
And then Cassie, you mentioned a motion to suppress. Is that different? Yeah, it ultimately would exclude a result if you win in the exclusion of evidence, but um, th- they're they're different because under a motion to suppress, you would be alleging violations of uh, the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution and the Indiana Constitution, Article One, Section Eleven. And how long do pretrial conferences last? They typically do not take very long. Um, mine would normally last somewhere around five minutes, and if I could make them last two minutes, I'd do it that way instead. Um, but some people do take longer. Um, some of them can take 10 or 15 minutes. It also depends on whether it's a, like your first pretrial conference or, your, or what you think is going to be your last pretrial conference because at the last one before the trial, usually there are a lot of motions that people file kind of in the last week or two before the case goes to trial and the judge has to decide on things like exactly what witnesses are and aren't allowed to say, um, whether or not instructions are okay or not okay. So they're, at the last second there, there's usually a lot going on. And sometimes those hearings can be a little bit longer because of that. But like those early pretrial conferences, a lot of times you just walk in and you're like, Judge, we're still doing discovery. Can I have another date? And they give you another date and you leave. Now it's a little more than that, but, you know, not too much. Is there anything else about a pretrial conference that we haven't talked about that is important that our listeners should know? Don't show up drunk. That is good advice. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I've, I would never get drunk in court and go to court, but. Or smelling like weed. You probably shouldn't smell like weed either. You should not smoke weed in the car on the way to court. That is also not a good idea. Um, yeah. I suggest uh, appropriate attire for court. Mm. What is that? My my idea of appropriate attire might be different than <laughs> like one of those bums on the street outside. <laughs> Listen to Terry <laughs> getting all bougie on us all, <laughs> all those dirty bums down on the sidewalk outside our building i would say something between business casual and business and kind of who the person is may control and what the hearing is i mean you want to wear you know i would say wear your best i mean not telling you wear a tuxedo to your trial but um you know you, you probably want to wear a suit that day but i wouldn't expect you to wear a suit maybe to a pre-trial um are jeans okay? I would not recommend jeans. Not, tennis shoes? No, I, I wouldn't wear tennis shoes or flip-flops. A top or Spaghetti hat. straps. Um, you shouldn't wear a hat at all um, unless it's it's a headscarf for religious purposes. You should expect to uh, take it off. Or, I mean, I guess if you have a yarmulke or something like that, you would probably get that as well. But you can't wear a baseball cap, a top hat. Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 Could Cassie's imagining a Monopoly game <laughs> turning into a court hearing. Didn't Terry just say top hat? I did. <laughs> well, that's where I got it from. Could I bring, well, maybe not I, could a defendant bring their kids, like if they can't find childcare? Uh, that happens. It does. Um, it's not recommended, but it does happen. And it depends on the court how far you can push that. Generally, they say no children. Um, and generally, the older the kid is, and the more well-behaved they are, they might, if you sneak them in, you may not get kicked out. Um, there are some places, I mean, if it's a toddler or something, there's just nothing you can do. Um, 
I believe Marion County at least at one time had child care, but uh, unfortunately you are expected to coordinate transportation and child care to appear as yeah. ordered by the court. One of the, uh, one of the sneaky things that people do sometimes um, is if, if they're going to a hearing like a sentencing hearing where they, um, they, they may get sentenced to prison or they may not get sentenced to prison, they'll bring their kids and they'll bring them on their own. <laughs> hmm. So the kids are all there in court and the judge has to see the kids and and understand what he's taking away from the kids before the sentence is announced. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think like, oh, well, that, that, that means more people will stay out of prison. But sometimes I think it actually has the opposite effect where it makes the judge mad because if you feel like you're using the kid as a prop. Um, so I don't recommend that either. Although I've I've certainly seen that happen a lot of times, I think. So we are now going to interrupt this episode to bring you the latest Florida man news. Florida. Florida. Man. Yeah. So Florida man, more specifically, the owner of that kangaroo that the Florida police <laughs> apprehended last week. Florida kangaroo has an owner. I assumed he was wild and free. Um. No. Well, Florida, the owner of. Florida kangaroo was arrested and he's facing criminal charges. Oh. Yeah. CBS Miami reports that Florida man is facing several charges, including allowing the animal to escape. (laughs) (laughs) How did he, did he allow it really? Did he just, he opened the gate and was like, go ahead, kangaroo, have fun. I doubt it. The kangaroo is large. The kangaroo goes where the kangaroo wants to go. I would guess where exotic animals are concerned, there's an assumption of risk and it's just on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, you brought this thing here. If you don't want your kangaroo escaping, Cletus, maybe you should try not owning a kangaroo. <laughs> a couple other charges is he didn't have records for how he got florida kangaroo (laughs) (laughs) he bought a kangaroo on the black market i wonder what a kangaroo goes for on the black market they probably shoved it in one of those shipping tubes and it was snuck in you know you know what they do these exotic animals this is tragic well how but how much would you pay for a kangaroo on the black market i have no idea but they are like when they're little, they're in pouches. So maybe you can put them in a little pouch and ship them somewhere. Right. When they're joeys. Right. Yeah. Joey. I, I watch PBS. <laughs> you know this, this that that's actually the, the uterus, right? Maybe not. It? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's Or it's the p- kangaroo's vagina. Look it up. Yeah. It's not like, I mean, it's not furry lined in there. I mean, it's, it's. I have to watch some PBS. I'm looking right now. This is what Google's for. Because there's like, I remember there's this fraught journey that the Joey has to make right after it's born where it climbs from out of the birth canal into the pouch where presumably the nipples are for nursing and they can fall and it's like deadly for them if they fall when that's happening. I think I remember this. Okay, you're right. It is. It's still. It's more yeah. than a simple. Well, it it it, it it it's not a vagina or the birth canal or any of that. Sorry, sorry for the excitement. <laughs> so, um, it's a complex nursery that contains everything a growing joey needs. The pouch is hairless on the inside, lined with sweat glands that release 
antimicrobial Ugh. liquid Ugh. to keep the Joey safe from germs. I am not okay with that. <laughs> I think it was a moist uh, pouch, so okay. that was how yeah. I mentally thought. Right. <laughs> that, that was you're getting an insight of how my brain works. But but back to my question: No, how much would you pay? I don't mean how much should up we expect to pay, but how much would you pay for a kangaroo? If I told you you could have a kangaroo, how much would you pay for it? Like, come on, I'm the environmentalist. If I'm not shipping that thing to an appropriate uh, kangaroo sanctuary, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with this purchase. So zero. It <laughs> like, would be zero. I, I think I would pay like. 30 bucks. Well, to have it for myself, I would pay to send it to a sanctuary. <laughs> By the way, for the for the six people listening at home, do not send me a kangaroo <laughs> with a bill for 30 bucks. I'm joking. I don't, I would not actually buy a kangaroo because my wife would kill me, not cuz it wouldn't be awesome, cuz it would be totally awesome. I am happy to report that Florida kangaroo is being taken care of by the Florida Fish and Wildlife. Well, that's good news. Yes. Now, back to more happenings in Florida. Uh-huh. Yep. Florida man tried to evade an arrest by cartwheeling out of the way from cops. <laughs> and it's on video. It's viral right now if you were to go online and just search Florida man cartwheel like you'll find it abc mm -hmm. news reports that florida man was caught on camera blocking the path of a garbage truck you can see him standing there in the road and he's not well he's not just standing there he's doing like karate kicks and cartwheels in the road mm -hmm. so the police come and <laughs> <laughs> they're like bro just go do it on the sidewalk and you're fine and he's like i'll chop you in the face <laughs> 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 he's like, ooh, cops, and he's cartwheels out of there. Cocaine is a powerful drug. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so the the police officers come, and they take him down, and <laughs> they struggle, and Florida man was not done with his gymnastics show. He manages to wrestle away, and as soon as he gets up, he cartwheels again, and then, of course, this allowed <laughs> the cops more time to get him again. So they got him again, and then he's arrested. He's being charged with battery and a law enforcement officer and resisting arrest. Uh -huh. uh, that sounds about right. Those, uh, that seems appropriately charged. I, this story would be more fun if he was naked, but I assume he was dressed. He was dressed. Okay. He yeah. Was, yeah. Florida okay. man, next time, do better. Strip naked before you jump out in front of the uh, garbage truck. Yeah, and start cartwheeling. Yeah, that... <laughs> So, two Florida women who mm -hmm. tried to steal a 65-inch television from a Florida Walmart. Yeah, together they're just carrying it out. <laughs> oh, I've seen these surveillance videos. They just they just act like they're like, doo -doo -doo. like yeah, I own this now. <laughs> it's like, oh, register pay who? Huh, me? That's did you read the report? <laughs> this is not the first time, yeah. and and this is not a ta not a, a tactic exclusive to Florida shoplifters. Right, Terry, you obviously haven't spent very much time around shoplifters. Let no. me tell you, the most important part of a shoplifting scheme 
is confidence. Okay. <laughs> look like you know what you're doing, where you're supposed to be. You look like you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and that there's no one should question one little bit what's going on. Like that is the most important part of it. You walk with confidence, with your head up, you look people in the eye, you nod at people, you say hi, and you keep moving. Yeah, so these Florida women, <laughs> they went to Walmart and got a cart and went directly to the electronic part yeah. or section, mm -hmm. loaded up with electronics, managed to somehow wedge the 65-inch television in the cart. Oh, and, yeah. yeah I, I can fit a 65-inch television in a shopping cart. That's, that's they, workable. And they confidently tried to walk out the door. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when uh, employees of Walmart came up and asked for the receipt the one pushing the cart <laughs> claimed she didn't have one uh -huh. and that provided the second florida lady the opportunity to grab all the other electronics and run and get in her car the other lady ran off too not with the tv that was left in the cart but they got away with all the electronics they bought and police are out looking for them they actually made it? Good they for them. Wow. What is this for investigation? They made it. And this brings me to a point that I think about often in shoplifting cases and in resisting law enforcement cases, especially the resisting by flight cases, um, which is we only see the ones usually where people got caught, right? Um and it makes, when you get caught in the middle of your life and your job and you only see the people who get caught, you, you start thinking for a while, like, why do people keep doing this? They're just going to get caught. And then you remember, if you think about it outside of the bubble you're in for a second, they keep doing it because lots of people get away with it. That's why. Like, shoplifting is still a thing in every store in the United States, and it's because they get away with it plenty of times. That's why people keep doing it. That's why people run from the police so much too. It's because sometimes they get away. Um, you, well, you can escape. It happens. And then I guess uh, from the shop, from the law, the loss prevention officer, it's just a regular store employee, you know, they're, I, if I were that job, I wouldn't be tackling anybody, any, any criminals chasing anybody down. No be like, I'm getting whatever <laughs> I'm getting, you know, you don't pay me. <laughs> right. There was a, there was a case, I think a year or two ago here, it might've been three years ago now here in Indianapolis where a loss prevention officer tried to stop a woman going out of the store with something that she apparently hadn't paid for. And I'm not making this up. I think she pooped her pants and then threw the poop at the loss prevention officer. And who does not get paid nearly as much as I, he should. Yeah, right. Not not for that. I love this job. But if you told me that there was a one and 10,000 chance that one of my clients was going to come in here and throw <laughs> poop at me, I'd go get a different job. <laughs> like, that's not a thing that I'm going to keep doing. And that wraps up this episode of Tales from the Brown Desk. All right. Thank you, Terry. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Tales from the Brown Desk. Please remember, while we may discuss legal issues and provide information regarding the law to our listeners, we do not intend to create an attorney-client relationship with any listener. Our advice may not be applicable to some legal issues. Please consult with an attorney you have hired to review your legal situation before you attempt to apply the things we have said to your case. 
Also, you can ask us listener questions just like Amanda did today. Um, please email Terry at T-E-R-I at RigneyLawIndy.com and entitle your email podcast question. And we'll read it on our next podcast. Unless we start getting too many questions and then we'll just read the good ones. But this week we got what? One? One. We got one. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, Buzzsprout says we have 29 listeners now. That's up three from last week. Yay. Including someone new in Montreal, Canada. Sacre blue, you hosers. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't, uh, I, I'm glad you're listening, but I don't know why. <laughs> um, the attorneys at Rigney Law, by the way, do not comment on their current pending cases. Nothing we have said in this podcast is a comment on a case we are currently working on, even if your name is Chad or if you are a Canadian living in Canada, because <laughs> that's where Canadians live. Au revoir.